Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, JR. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you, uh, to bring God's Word to you this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 4. Uh, for those of you who may not have been with us, uh, what we have just witnessed is uh, Moses has been commissioned by God to go and deliver his people, and God has given him these signs that he is going to show to the people to ensure to them that they know this is God who is delivering, and he's also uh, allowed Moses to bring along his brother Aaron to be his, his mouthpiece to speak to the people of God. So we're entering in to the story again as Moses is headed back to do just that. I'm going to actually... It is our custom for us to stand, but I'm going to let you sit. Uh, we have quite a lengthy text uh, this morning, so I'm going to let you sit this morning uh, as we read God's Word, but uh, ask that you still continue to give the same reverence that we do each week to this holy and inspired Word. We'll start in chapter 4, verses 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you go before Pharaoh, excuse, excuse me, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flit and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land 
are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. For the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to, to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday is in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. The fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, uh, that you speak to us through your word. I pray this morning that you would use your word to bring your truth to us, your people. Lord, even when it's hard to hear, Lord, we pray that you would make ready our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a phone call uh, last week from someone in our church, and it was one of those calls that I could immediately tell something was terribly wrong. Uh, and as it turns out, the person who was calling was calling to inform me uh, that the doctors had discovered a spot on her husband's liver uh, and that it might be cancer. And uh, as soon as I was able to uh, digest uh, or, or even come away from the shock, I just couldn't help but ask this question. Um, it was a nagging question that continued to haunt me long after I heard the news. And the question was, God, why? Why? God, why would you allow this to happen? And this past week, I've been thinking a lot about that question. And what I was reminded of this week is that regardless of whether or not 
that was the right question to ask, I was reminded that that question is profoundly religious. Because an irreligious person would never say, why God in a moment such as this? He or she might say, why me? Or why now? But never, why God? And as I was thinking about that, I was beginning to ponder and, and really look at what is underneath that question, why God? And what I realized is that when I ask that question in moments of extreme suffering, I'm acknowledging something profound. In that moment, I'm acknowledging my belief that God is in complete control of the situation. And even more than that, I'm acknowledging my belief that God could have chosen to prevent that evil or that suffering from happening. And that belief, that doctrine, if you will, that God is in control and that God has the ability to stop suffering but often chooses not to, is probably the doctrine that has single-handedly kept more people away from Christianity than any other doctrine. And I don't know where you are on this particular doctrine. I imagine many of you, like me, try to avoid it whenever possible. However, our text this morning demands that we engage it, that we wrestle with it. And so for those of you who are here this morning and you call yourself a follower of Christ, I ask that you would go there with me. And then for those of you here this morning who don't identify as a Christian, maybe for this very reason, I hope and pray that the message this morning, although no doubt not fully satisfying, might move you one step closer to faith in Christ. Now before we dive all the way into the question of why God, I want to show you in the text where we see that this doctrine, although unpleasant, is true. Look again at verse 21 in chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. And then a few verses later, we see that God made good on his promise. If you look at chapter 5, starting in verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Biblical scholars have tried to wiggle their way out of what this text makes abundantly clear for some time. But the reality is that what the text says is that God sent Moses on a mission that he himself was going to sovereignly and authoritatively sabotage. He was going to make it fail. And as a result of God's sabotage of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, there was extreme suffering that came about for God's people. The scriptures are crystal clear here, and in many other places for that matter, that our God often orchestrates the suffering of his people. Not only does he allow it, but it is his design. 
So in light of this truth, it appears as though the question, why God, may be in fact the exact right question for us to ask in moments of suffering. Why, God, why? Why would you do such things? I do want to clarify here briefly that as we look at this particular passage, God is here only addressing the suffering of his people. It's not that the Bible is silent on the issue of suffering in general, but that's just not what this text is about. This text is about the God-ordained suffering of his people, of believers. In a few weeks, we will look at the sufferings of Pharaoh and of Egypt, which is a whole different can of worms. But this morning, our text asks that we look exclusively at the suffering of God's people. So again, we have to ask the question, why? Why would God do this? I want you to look again with me at chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Here, God's people appear to be right on track. Moses and Aaron have gathered the elders and have shared with them God's glorious plan of deliverance. They've even shown these miraculous signs in case some of them were struggling with doubt. And it appears as though they are ready to go to leave Egypt. And then they believed God. They heard that the Lord had visited them. He had seen their affliction, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Time to get the heck out of here. But wait a minute. Then we see in chapter 5, the trouble comes. Just as God has promised, Pharaoh refuses to let Israel go, and he actually heaps even more oppression and suffering on them. And then I want to look with you at the response. Look at verse 20. Look at how quickly the people of God turn. From worship to absolute lack of faith. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron after they had talked with Pharaoh and it wasn't good. And they said to Moses, Lord, look on you and judge. You're not our deliverer. You're the one who's made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and have put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. And then worse than that, Moses himself caves. He loses faith. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you send me? There's no deliverance at all. And I believe it's from these responses that we can begin to see why God orchestrated such great suffering for his people. Because what their responses reveal is that God's people weren't ready. They weren't yet ready, but ready for what? What is it that God had to prepare them for? For those of you who know the story, you might quickly think that God is trying to prepare them for the wilderness because soon they're going to be having to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. It's going to be hard, and God's thinking, if they can't handle this, there's no way they're going to make it out there. But I don't think that's what God is after. When we look further in the text, I really think what God is trying to prepare them for is the promised land. He's bringing this suffering in their life because they're not yet ready to experience and enjoy the promised land. What do I mean? When you look at the text and you see the responses of God's people, we can just imagine what it would have been like had God come in and pulled his people out and placed them right in the promised land. I think it would have been a disaster. Why? 
Well, because what we see here is that God, if God had pulled them out without this journey, without this suffering, the people would have looked to the milk and honey for satisfaction. They would have looked to the gifts of God rather than to God Himself. You see, the fact that God's people throw in the towel so quickly when the suffering comes reveals that their hearts were not fully His. Their hearts were not fully God's. It reveals that they only love God as long as God gives them what they want, as long as He gives them the good gifts. They're worshiping the gifts rather than the giver, which is what made the Exodus so tricky for God because He wanted to free His people, but He was after their whole hearts. And He knew in His divine wisdom that the only way that He could get their whole hearts was through suffering. C.S. Lewis, in his masterpiece, The Problem of Pain, says, you might be familiar with this quote, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. For those of you who don't know my story, it wasn't until late in college that I started to walk with God and uh, so as a result, uh, when I graduated from college, I was just a baby Christian, uh, still on mama's milk, if you will. And yet, in spite of my being a babe, I was quite zealous. Uh, and I think it was because of my zeal that I was invited to be uh, a campus minister uh, at Georgia Tech. And my first job was to pioneer a fraternity and sorority ministry at, at Georgia Tech. Now, a little more context here. I graduated from the University of Alabama. Okay? Alabama is a party school that does academics on the side. I was being sent to Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech is an academic institution that does partying quite awkwardly. <laughs> it's important now that you see those perceptions because whether they're accurate or not, these were the perceptions that I was bringing into uh, this ministry and these perceptions were producing in me a profound sense of arrogance. You see, I was convinced as I came to the campus that I was cool enough to win this nerd school for Christ. I was fully convinced that I had the gifts, the charisma, that I was going to just come in and take over for Jesus. It's going to be a slam dunk. I hope you realize that I'm, I'm not proud of what I'm saying. I'm just being honest about how I approach the campus. Now, let me tell you about my first semester. I developed relationships with five different students. I began to disciple these students, to walk with them and, and try to teach them about God. Over the next few months, all but one of them left and said, no thanks. And I can, I can understand why. They had nothing to do with me. And I can remember it was come December and I was sitting down to write a, a letter to my donors to tell them what I had been up to for the past semester and I started to cry. I didn't do a lot of crying back then, but I, I was crying because I was so ashamed and humiliated. God was breaking me down, and I have no question in my mind that it was God himself who orchestrated what happened. I can look back now and see his hands all over it because God was bringing pain into my life to produce a dependence in me that I desperately needed. He brought about this suffering because he was after my whole heart. I was even pondering this week, if I had not experienced that profound failure in the face of such great pride, I can imagine I'd be so inclined to think that it's because of me that there's all these people coming to Christ Central Church. 
But God knew he needed to humble me. He needed to speak to me. And he needed to shout for this egomaniac to hear. The reality is we serve a jealous God. He is after our whole hearts. And he knows that in him and in him alone will we be truly satisfied. And therefore he is willing to allow pain in our life in order for us to experience that lasting joy. Again, Lewis says, The creature's illusion of sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And he goes on to say, Let him, let God but sheathe that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness. If not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God sees us remade in full. Are you tracking with what he's saying? The first step for us in facing the suffering in our life is to recognize that God is using it for a purpose. It's not meaningless. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God's not saying that whatever you're going through does not hurt, that it's easy, but rather that it's not in vain. That God's working it for good. Now I can, I can hear your objection. I hear it. You're sitting there saying, that sounds great. It's all well and good. It sure is nice when you can look back and see God's hand in it. But what about the times when God's plan seems nowhere to be found? I mean, it's not so easy to look back on the abuse that I suffered as a child and see God's hand in it and say, thank you, God. Or to see my marriage that's falling apart or my struggle with chronic pain or my inability to find a job or a roof over my head or the miscarriage after miscarriage. It sounds really nice to say that God is working through our suffering. Put that on a Hallmark card, but that doesn't help me in the pain. Amen? It's true, but it actually doesn't really get to where I'm feeling that suffering, that angst, that hurt. So I want to finish by looking at three truths that we see in the text that help to drive this truth deeper into our hearts in the midst of pain like we can't imagine. Some of us are imagining and living. If, if, if these truths have been more evident to God's people, I think they could have weathered this storm that they were in. And I hope that as we look at these troops, these truths, that you might be able to weather whatever storm you're in right now. The first truth is that God has promised deliverance. Although we may be in the storm, God has promised deliver us. The strangest thing about this text is that Moses misses this entirely. He totally misses this. We don't know if Moses shared all the details with the elders, with God's people, but we can maybe let Israel off the hook, but Moses has no excuse. God said clearly to Moses he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and that is exactly what he did. In fact, Moses would have actually had reason to doubt God only if God had let people, his people go, if Pharaoh had let God's people go. 
then Moses would have been worried because then God would have been a liar. Then God would no longer be trustworthy, but God had promised that this was going to happen. And what this does for us, this this helps us to understand that we serve a God who always keeps his promises. That is the message throughout Scripture. God always keeps his promises, and his promises are immeasurably glorious. Let me just share some with you. God has promised to love us with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31. He promises to fight for us, Exodus 14. He promises strength to the weary and power to the weak, Isaiah 40. He promises to bind up the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61. He promises to give wisdom to those who ask ask for it, James 1. He promises to forgive the sins of those who confess, 1 John chapter 1. He promises to listen when we call out to Him, 1 Chronicles 7. He promises eternal life to those who believe, John 3. He promises that He is making all things new, Revelation 21. Do you need some more? Do you need some more? He promises freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, refuge for the oppressed, peace to the anxious. He promised to give us the desires of a heart to those who take delight in Him. He promises a glorious inheritance that never perishes. That's our God. His promises are magnificent, and He always keeps His promises. And He promises suffering. We have to lean into Him and trust Him in the suffering. Secondly, God promises His presence. As Daniel beautifully highlighted last week, when Moses began to voice his doubt to God, God refused to build up Moses' ego. He refused to cultivate in Moses more confidence in himself, but rather reminded Moses, I will be with you. That was the truth that was supposed to carry Moses through. It is so easy for us to believe in the midst of pain that God is absent. Amen? Amen. We so often go there, but what our text reveals is that God is not absent, but most present. How do we know that? Look at what happens when Moses is freaking out. He cries out to God, and God answers. He doesn't have to send an email. He doesn't have to send a text. He doesn't have to make an appointment. He doesn't have to set up a meeting. He doesn't have to wait. He cries out to God and God answers because he's with him. He's right there beside him in the suffering. Not only is he present, but God is present and he gets your pain. He gets it. Look again at verse 22 in chapter 4. God says, Then you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I have to admit, I didn't really understand this passage until I became a dad. And now being a father, I realize there's no greater pain than to watch your children suffer. It is awful. It is so hard. And sometimes it's even harder when I realize that I'm the one who's causing that suffering. Whether it be something small like taking them to the doctor for a shot, or maybe something much larger like having to discipline my child when they've done wrong. And it's so hard when I know that I'm the one who's causing, who's bringing about this suffering. And it's extremely painful when in that moment my kids fail to see that it hurts me to see them suffer. 
when my son, after he's disciplined, will look at me and say, I hate you, Dad, or you don't love me. It's so hard to hear that because that's the exact opposite of what is true. That my love is driving me to care for him even through difficult things. And yet, whether he sees my good intentions or not as the father, I know I must do what's best for him. God's people in Exodus 5, they've yet to see that God is at work. And I can't imagine what, God, what that feels like to God. They're so ungrateful. They don't know that God is working it out for good. But the truth is that we have to recognize that our God, who is infinitely wise and good, He is aware, and He sees, and it's excruciating for Him to see us hurt. I think, again, Lewis, I think he captures this masterfully in his first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've read it, The Magician's Nephew. And, and, and this story is a boy named Diggory, uh, whose mother has chronic illness, and she has a few months left to live. And during the story, Diggory has the privilege of meeting up with Aslan, who's the Christ figure uh, in the Narnia series, and he's portrayed as a mighty lion. And Diggory quickly comes to realize the awesome power of Aslan, this lion, and it brings about both fear and wonder in Diggory. He's just amazed and, and, and dumbstruck by this mighty beast. And then there's this scene where Diggory is finally able to muster up enough courage to make a request of the mighty lion. And this is what he says. He says through trembling lips, he says, But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? And then the narrator says, Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet, the huge claws on them. But now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, says Aslan, I know Grief is great. In order for us to fully embrace this doctrine that God is in control and good in the midst of suffering, we have to look God in the face. To look at His face, and when we see His tears, we see the agony, then and only then will we be able to worship. And not only does God get our pain because he's seen it, we have a God who's experienced it. When God says to Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, my son, then I will take your firstborn son. No way Moses could have known the foreshadowing that was here. But we know that for God to rescue us, his beloved, at the end of the day, he had to sacrifice his own son. Not just allow it, but orchestrate the sacrifice of his son for you and I. John Stott once said, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I can remember, I wasn't going to share this personally, but I feel like I have permission now. I can remember sitting with Jenna and Logan um, when 
we, when I learned of the miscarriage. And there was this profound barrier between us that I couldn't do anything about. And that barrier was the fact that I didn't, I don't know the agony of losing a child. I don't know what that's like. I couldn't, I couldn't fully relate to the suffering they were experiencing. But the good news for us, brothers and sisters, is that our God knows the suffering that you're going through. He can relate. He has experienced suffering beyond measure. And he comes alongside us and he says, I get it. He says, I will be with you in the pain. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what uh, my brothers and sisters here are going through. What is causing them to ask you, why God? But I hope and pray that this morning they would be able to believe maybe just a little bit more that you are good and that you are with them and that you are working towards their whole heart, winning them to yourself, drawing them to yourself so that they might experience the joy of being fully yours. God, would you meet us in that suffering? God, remind us that you understand and that you're with us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.